You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles. Can you guys hear me all right? I'm assuming, yeah, we good? Cool. Yeah, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 29. We're going to be looking at verses 29 through 39 this evening as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, And tonight we're going to be looking at, uh, very simply, a day in the life of the Lord Jesus. Uh, As cheesy as that might sound, that's basically what we are looking at this evening. And uh, this introduction is incredibly short because there's a lot of stuff for us to cover. But as we read this passage here in a moment, and and we consider what it has to say, what we're going to see in these 11 verses is what Jesus focused on. All right, what was his focus in his earthly ministry? What did he do? We're, go- we're going to basically get a snapshot of his ministry and his priorities. Uh, and, and we're going to see that while Jesus did many signs and wonders, and while he healed many people and cast out many demons from people, his primary focus was to do spiritual good. His primary focus was to do spiritual good for people. That's why he came into this world. We're going to see that Jesus would not be put off from his task of preaching and that he would not have any obstacle get in his way of going to the cross to pay for the sins of those who would believe on him. The Lord Jesus came to do spiritual good for those who repent and believe in him and nothing was going to keep him from his mission. So with that said, let's go ahead and read the Gospel of Mark chapter 1 verses 29 through 39. And immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother, mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, please put your blessing to this reading of Scripture. Grant it to us that your word will be sealed to our hearts. Please, Lord, help us to be attentive to the word preached now, that we might grow in our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and what you've done through him. Please help us to submit to your word and learn from it. Speak to us as we sang earlier. Speak to us as your spirit works alongside your word. We ask that you'd glorify yourself this evening. And we know that you're good to hear us when we pray and answer us with your blessing. Because we ask for it in Jesus' name. And we ask for it for his sake. Amen. All right, so our text this evening uh, begins where we left off last week. 
Right? Jesus has just finished preaching in the synagogue of Capernaum uh, where he also cast a, a demon out of a possessed man. This is that same day. And Jesus, uh, so he's just given us a huge display of his authority over the supernatural realm. Uh, he's just given us a huge sign uh, that's meant to point us to who he is, right? And, and having authority over demons and that they obey him at his very word. Uh, meant to, it's meant to show us that he is God. Only God has this kind of authority, that he's the Messiah sent from God to redeem God's people from the tyranny of Satan and from the tyranny of sin. It's meant to show us that he has authority to teach, that he has authority to do everything because he again is God he's the divine son of God and after this worship service is over in the synagogue where all that happens our text tells us that Jesus left that synagogue with his four disciples and they go to Simon's house that's Peter right Simon Peter Cephas in the New Testament same guy so they go to Peter's house and this tells us that the disciples while they weren't from Capernaum uh, had apparently moved there for their fishing businesses um, and from the accounts of the Gospels, you can read the other Gospels, uh, we see that Jesus kind of set up headquarters uh, in his early ministry in Capernaum. And Peter's house, this is kind of cool to think about, Peter's house was probably where Jesus lived during the beginning portion of his ministry. So how cool would that be for Peter to be able to say, yes, Jesus lived with me for a while, <laughs> me and my family. Uh, but so the four of them are at Peter and Andrew's house, they're brothers, at Peter's house after the synagogue service. And then we read in verse 30, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. So Peter's mother-in-law uh, had a fever. If you want to read Luke chapter 4, we see a parallel account of what we're reading here in Mark 1. And in Luke's account of this, he tells us, he tells us that her fever was a high fever. So this is really bad stuff, right? And that doesn't sound very serious to us because, again, we live in a time where medicine is all over the place. But back then, a high fever could be really deadly, right? They didn't have medicine like we do. And our text tells us that her, she was so sick with this fever that she lay ill with it. So picture this. She's on her back laying in a bed. She can't even stand up. She's so sick, right? She could potentially die from this high fever. So what do the disciples do? They do the only logical thing that you would do when you have the Son of God staying in your house. Uh, they go and tell Jesus what's going on. And they know that if he can cast out demons that they just witnessed in the synagogue hours earlier, then surely healing someone of a sickness is nothing to him. Right? So they believe he has the ability to heal her, so they tell her what's going on. And verse 31 says, And he came up and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So again, just simply, Jesus just goes to her bed, <laughs> takes her by the hand, lifts her to where she's sitting upright. Uh, Luke tells us that he also spoke some words over her, rebuking her fever. But bottom line, Jesus touches this woman and speaks over her, and just like that, she's healed. It's, it's a done deal. And what I want to highlight here, this is a sermon in and of itself, but I decided to use a lot of, of the text this evening. But right here, I think the, the compassion of our Lord Jesus is highlighted in the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Maybe he's never met her before, right? We, we don't know, but he, maybe he's never met Peter's mother-in-law before. What, what I'm almost positive, positive of is she's never done anything for him. She's, she's a sick, probably older woman laying on a bed. What has she done for Jesus? Not only that, but Jesus is probably a bit tired from the morning service at the synagogue, right? If you've ever preached, preaching can take a good bit of energy out of you. 
Not only that, but he, again, he's human, right? He's probably hungry, and for their culture, the Sabbath meal was usually after the synagogue meeting. He's not eaten yet. Not only that, but he's just cast out a demon. He's just come face to face with a spiritual being and exercised authority over it. All that said, in his human nature, in his humanity, our Lord Jesus was tired. He was most likely tired. I would imagine that, especially it being the Sabbath day, he desired to take the rest of the day and rest. But then what happens? Seeing a need, here comes the Lord Jesus Christ, full of compassion and full of grace, and he touches this woman who has never done anything for him and lifts her up and makes her well. She doesn't do anything to get him to do this. She's just lying there. It's not a tit-for-tat thing. He just does this for her. And notice how personal he is. I, I, I skipped over this in my reading a ton of times. He, he, he's personal with her. He comes to her bed, and he lifts her up. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to take her by the hand. He's very personal with this woman. He took pity on her, and he healed her. Consider the great compassion of Christ in this. He displayed love for this woman. And I wanted to highlight this to say this. We're a Reformed church, right? Beat your chest on that, right? Reformed. We're Calvinists. We preach a great, big God. A huge, sovereign God. We preach a Jesus who is, again, sovereign. He's king. He's not to be trifled with. He's the great ruler and king. He's the monarch of the universe. But I don't want us to ever forget that this great God and King is full of compassion. He's full of mercy. He shows grace to sinful, fallen human beings, especially those who believe upon Him. Those sinners who believe upon Him, He saves them from their sins. He gives them eternal life. He makes them new people. He frees them from the bondage of sin and Satan. But again, His compassion here of this sovereign Jesus that, again, and, and, and it maybe, it, maybe it's just me, but we tend to look at him, again, not a wussy, sissified, needy Jesus, but a strong warrior king, and then we forget his great compassion and his great humility. Here, Jesus is basically making a house call for this woman. He's making a house call and healing her. And this healing's not extravagant compared to his other huge miracles that he would do throughout his ministry. But nevertheless, Jesus takes the time to care for this woman. He not only does he do these mighty and spectacular works in the public square where many people can see, but he also does things in private where there's four or five witnesses there. He's not necessarily about a large crowd. What he is about is being compassionate and merciful to those around him who are in need. He is full of grace. He's full of kindness. And we cannot forget that or we will be lopsided Christians. Some people, that's all they think about. That's all they see whenever they consider Christ. And again, they, they paint this picture of him as if he's a wuss who's basically here to reinstate a divine welfare system, right? But at the same time, we can fall off the other side of the horse and only ever see him as a stern, transcendent king that's not to be trifled with, we can't forget that he's both. Can't forget he's sovereign and also full of mercy because if we do that, we're going to lack grace and kindness toward the people around us. You will, I promise. But look at how she's healed. She's healed instantaneously, is she not? And it's a full healing. Verse 30 tells us that she gets up 
and begins serving them. And you could spiritualize that and preach a sermon on how whenever Christ makes you well spiritually, you get up and serve Jesus. But really what, this, what, that meant, what that's meant, she served them, is re referring to food service. She gets up and begins to make food for the whole house. What this detail in this narrative is meant to show us is that she is completely healed, through and through, completely healed. Now, normally, whenever someone has a high fever and it breaks, what do they need to do? Take it easy for a couple of days, lay around, drink some fluids, right, all that stuff. But not this time, not with this woman. Jesus touches her, and she's made well, so much so that she immediately gets up and starts putting some food together for this group of men, grown men. This is going to be a lot of food, right? This is a complete healing. She is well. Jesus didn't do half a job with her. When he heals her, it's complete healing. This is a, a supernatural event that has just taken place. Again, we're quick to sweep it under the rug because it was just a fever, but nevertheless, it was an instantaneous healing. This is not within the natural realm. Jesus has just exercised divine power and authority over sickness and the human body. Again, you want to see his authority. Look at that. So now we've seen he has authority to teach. He has authority over the supernatural realm. He has authority over the human body and sicknesses. But that won't be the only miracle Jesus does that day, right? There's a lot more that he's going to do before the next morning. Verse 32 through 34. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So at sundown that day, a ton of people come to Peter's house to see Jesus. And maybe you're wondering, why did they wait till sundown if they knew Jesus was there? Remember, it's the Jewish Sabbath Right? And many, many of the people in that day, they believed the man-made rules uh, that the Pharisees had put in place, saying that healing wasn't acceptable to do on the Sabbath. And we're going to see in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus just starts healing people on the Sabbath, just all the time. <laughs> it's very funny. Uh, so it's nonsense. You're, you're totally allowed to do good works on the Sabbath. Um, so again, they wait till the sundown. They bring the people to Jesus because they had seen what he had done earlier that morning in the synagogue. But think about this. This crowd is huge. It says the city was gathered at the door. Capernaum was a town of like 10,000 to 15,000 people, right? So imagine that word comes to a city like Portsmouth, right? Roughly the same size as our city. Uh, but word comes through Portsmouth that there is a man who can heal with his words at someone's house, right? And there are eyewitnesses who said, I've seen him do it already. Could you imagine what that would be like? Like what it would be like gathered outside that house. It would be chaos. <laughs> Wouldn't it? it would be absolute pandemonium. People would be beating down the door of that house, filling the sidewalks and the streets. There would be hundreds, if not thousands of people gathered in that area near the house. And what would they be doing? They'd be begging to see the one person who can make them well or who can make their loved ones well. And that's the picture that we see in these verses. Again, just utter madness outside of Peter's house. A huge crowd. If you've ever been around really big crowds that are all clamoring for something, you can feel really overwhelmed really, really quickly. And I'm sure the disciples are sitting there thinking to themselves, especially Peter and Andrew, it's their house. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? There are so many of them. But there Jesus is, again, inviting them all in the home or going to them outside of the home one by one and healing them and healing all of them and casting out demons. Luke chapter 4, verse 40, tells us a really interesting note about this. It says that Jesus laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. 
So it wasn't as if Jesus just spoke a word over the whole crowd and healed them in one shot, though that was definitely within his prerogative uh, to do so as the Son of God. But what does Jesus do? He takes his time instead. He spends a little bit of time with each one of them. He touches them all personally. He speaks over every one of them individually and heals them. I think we see again, I want to highlight this because this is what I, I can't get away from this whenever I read this passage. We see again the great compassion that the Lord Jesus Christ has on those who are in need. And again, I'll remind you, Jesus is truly human. As, as well as truly God, right? I don't want to fall off one side of the horse of that. right? But he's truly human. It's sundown. He's tired. There's a huge crowd outside. This is going to take all night, right? And if you've ever done any kind of service activity where you're around a large group of people who are all wanting something from you or from the group that you're with, you know how exhausting and annoying that that can be within like a half an hour. Amen, teachers? Right? People clamoring for your attention. Are like, it's very easy to become annoyed. But what do we see Jesus do? Some of you, you'd open your door and see 700 people outside of your house saying, help, and you just shut the door. Right? Nope, we're not going out there. Lock the doors. Someone knocks on the door. You turn the lights off, hide on the floor. You ever done that? Someone knocks on your house? Don't lie. Some of you have done it. You tell me the stories. But what does Jesus do? He's not annoyed with them. Is he? He doesn't send them away. And he doesn't complain that they need help. Instead, he goes out and he gets in the mix with these dirty and sick people. He spends time with every one of them. He touches them all and makes them all well. And when I say he heals all of them, that's what Luke tells us. And I want to clarify something. Our text tells us that he healed many and cast out many demons. But that doesn't mean that he healed some and not others. Luke tells us he healed all. So rather in healing the all, he healed many because the crowd's size was so great. And he cast out many demons, right? So there's no sickness that he can't heal. There's no demon he couldn't cast out. He's all-powerful and able to do absolutely anything. But he heals all of them. So not only with the individual private healing of Peter's mother-in-law, but also with these hundreds or more public healings, we see the Lord Jesus Christ showing great mercy and meeting the physical needs of these people who need healed. And I want to highlight that he does all of this out of pure grace. There's something spiritual for us to see here. All of this is out of pure grace. They've done nothing for him. They've done no favors for Jesus. He's not indebted to them in any kind of way, but he decides, them to show, he decides to show them mercy and compassion freely out of pure grace. Right? This is the Lord that we talk about, full of grace and mercy and compassion, unmerited. Right? And I can't pass this up. Right? Like I said, this reminds us of a spiritual truth, and I can't let this go. I'm going to let my inner Puritan out here for a second. Everyone, everyone, every single person, just like everyone in the crowd who gathered and came to Christ, every single person who comes to Christ in faith will leave completely well, spiritually speaking. I don't want you to read this passage and get the wrong idea that Jesus promises healing or that your earthly healing is promised in the atonement because it's not. That's junk that faith healers on TV use to bilk you out of your money. 
But nevertheless, all who come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, he will make time for you. He will not be annoyed with you. He says, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. I won't cast you away for anything if you come to me in faith. He will make you well. He will heal you of your sins. He will pick you up out of your sick bed of sin, so to speak, and make you a new person. Forgive you. He'll give you eternal life. And he does all of this out of pure, sovereign, and free grace. You don't earn this. You just come to him and say, please make me well. And he says, absolutely, I will. Like those people outside of Peter's house that day, Christ does not owe you mercy. He does not owe you compassion. He does not owe you forgiveness, but he will give it to you if you come to him in faith trusting in him for your salvation, trusting in him alone to make you right with the God that you've sinned against. And he'll do it by pure grace. This is our beautiful Savior, and we should rejoice whenever we see him healing people by grace, especially as his people, because we have been spiritually healed by that same grace of the Savior. But I think we need to ask a question here as we consider this passage. Why did Jesus do all these miracles? You ever wondered that? Why does Jesus do miracles? Why did he heal all of these people? And I'm not trying to undo a point that I've already made, right? We, we've already seen, I think it's fairly clear that he does this because he really is merciful. He really does have pity on people. You can read uh, in other gospels where Jesus looks upon a crowd and it says he's filled with great compassion. And then he does something. Right? So he really does have compassion. He really does take pity on these people. But there's another reason that he performs miracles. There's a, a much bigger, more important reason. Right? Jesus isn't just a healer. He's not just a miracle worker. He didn't just come to be the greatest doctor of all time. Right? Jesus had a mission to accomplish. Right? Again, we'll see this all throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus had been sent into the world in order to save sinners. He had been sent by his Father in order to preach the gospel and call people to repentance and faith in himself so that they could be saved. Christ came into the world to die in place of sinners, taking their sins upon themselves, on himself so that they might be forgiven through his atoning work on the cross. He came to bring sinners into the kingdom of God and reign over them as their king. And his miracles play a role in his big picture, what he came to do to save sinners. What these miracles do is they further substantiate Jesus' authority and his identity that we already saw established in the synagogue, right? They establish his identity as the Messiah. They establish the, the truth claim that he is indeed the Son of God. In fact, that's the big purpose. That's the one big purpose, if we're going to boil it down to one thing. That's the big purpose behind all of Jesus' miracles. And I, and I say that because that's the purpose of all of the miracles in the Bible, Right? It's to validate someone's claim of authority. Let's talk about miracles for a second. Right? The Bible actually doesn't use the word miracle in the original languages. Right? Shocker, that's an English word. But what it does talk about are signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. Often in the New Testament, what we would call a miracle, the New Testament calls signs. Now, pop quiz, what is the purpose of a sign? A sign points to something beyond itself. A sign never points to itself, right? You see the sign Portsmouth 20 miles ahead, right? The sign is pointing to where you want to go, or maybe you don't want to go there, but it's Portsmouth, and you have to, because that's where your job is, right? We all know the struggle is real. 
with our town, right? But a sign is never there for the sake of a sign, right? The sign always points to something else, something greater than just the sign. Consider with me for a moment the, the, the first great miracle worker, Moses. Write this down if you're taking notes. Exodus chapter 4. Go home and read Exodus 4. But in Exodus 4 we read where God tells Moses that he's going to be a prophet for God. And that he's going to go and tell Pharaoh and tell the Jews that God wants them free from Egypt. And how does Moses respond? They won't believe me. They won't believe that I've actually talked to you, Yahweh. Right? They're never going to believe this. They're not going to believe that you sent me. So what does God tell them to do? That staff in your hand, throw it on the ground. And it turned into a snake, which had to have been terrifying for Moses because he has no idea what's about to happen. And then God tells him, what after that? Pick the serpent up by its tail, and it turns back into a staff. And then God tells Moses, now put your hand into your shirt and take it out. And then his hand's covered with leprosy. God says, do it again. So he puts his hand back in his shirt, pulls it out, and his hand is clean. It's healed. What God's telling Moses in Exodus chapter 4 is, you think they won't listen to you? Let me tell you what you'll do. You'll do miracles. You'll do signs. I'll give you power to do these things, and that's how they will know that I sent you. That's how they'll know that you must listen, or they must listen to your words. And the same is true for all the people who work miracles in the Bible. You can actually read in Acts chapter 14, I should have put this in my notes, but the apostles are preaching, and it said the Lord blessed their preaching by letting them do many signs among the people as they preached. Or the Lord gave testimony to their preaching, referring to Jesus. Right? So all throughout the Bible, all these miracles, all the signs we see are meant to point to the reality that that person has been sent from God and commissioned by God, and they speak on behalf of God, and therefore they must be listened to, listened to and obeyed in everything that they say. Jesus' miracles spoke to that, that truth, that he's been sent by God, that his words are true, and he has to be listened, listened to. You can believe him because of the miracles you see him performing. He says to the Pharisees at one point, if you don't believe me, believe my works. Who else could do the things that I'm doing unless God sent me? And would God continue to allow me to do miracles if I'm blaspheming his name by saying I'm his son? Right? That's Jesus' line of logic. Believe what I've done if you don't believe what I say. But yes, you can believe him because of the miracles that you see from him. You can believe Jesus' message of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. His healing people points us to a greater truth. I think there's a lot of beauty for us to see in his healings. It points us to the truth that, yes, Christ indeed can take your burdens from you and make you well. If he can do that, he can take your sins from you. He can heal you physically because he can heal you spiritually. He can take the unclean and make them clean before God. He can take the spiritually lame and make them walk rightly with God. He can give the spiritually blind sight so that they might see the truth clearly and be saved. His miracles attest to his message. They're evidence that he's been sent by God. They're evidence that he brings salvation that comes from God. So you can see that Jesus didn't just heal people for the sake of healing them. Right? That wasn't his intention. Yes, indeed, he did show genuine compassion. His ministry was certainly full of good deeds towards people who were in need. And I don't want to minimize that at all. But the deeds that Jesus did were meant to point everyone who saw them 
and everyone who heard about them to the spiritual good that Jesus had come to do. They were meant to point people toward his message, this message of salvation that he would give to them if they would come to him and repent and believe on him, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. Jesus is much more concerned about the spiritual well-being and salvation of people than their earthly and physical well-being. But nevertheless, he doesn't neglect that either in his ministry. Now, quick thing, there's something at the end of verse 34 that might seem a little bit strange to you if you didn't catch it. But I think it's going to help us to see again that Jesus is concerned with doing spiritual good for people and not just physical good. It says, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. That's a weird line. Right? So he's casting out demons. Luke's gospel tells us that they're proclaiming that he is the son of God, and Jesus tells them to shut up. Right? Don't, don't tell anybody. You're not allowed to say that. So why would he tell them to be silent? We actually see Jesus do this not only to demons, but also to people that he heals. And even later in the Gospel of Mark, we'll see him do it to his own disciples. Peter will declare, you are the Christ. And he'll say, yeah, but don't tell anyone yet. Right? So why would Jesus do this? Why doesn't Jesus want people to declare his full identity? This is really strange. Well, first, let's address why he wouldn't want demons to declare his identity. And this is really simple. He doesn't want unholy spirits to speak his truth. Right? Simple enough. That's why he tells demons not to. Christ is not in league with demons. He has nothing in common with them. They obey him, but they are not his messengers, and they're not fit to be his messengers, and therefore they have no right to publicly declare who he is. Jesus doesn't want anyone to think that he has anything to do with demonic forces, and we're going to see him get accused of that anyway in Mark chapter 3. So that's why he silences the demons. He doesn't want anyone to, to be confused by a demon declaring that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. But people, why would Jesus not want people to declare his identity? This one's a little bit more complicated. But in a nutshell, the people that Jesus is around, they don't really understand what it means that he's the Messiah. They don't really understand what it means that he's the Son of God. They don't understand yet, anyway. You'll hear me go over the same information probably many times throughout this series. But most of the Jews of Christ's day thought that the Messiah was going to be an earthly military king who would end the Roman oppression against the Jews and set up an earthly kingdom. That's what they thought of whenever they thought of the kingdom of God. That's what they thought of whenever they thought of Christ, a Messiah, a king. But that's not at all what Christ had come to do. It's not what Jesus came for. He had come to set up a spiritual kingdom in his first coming and free people from the spiritual oppression of Satan and sin. Christ had come to save sinners from the wrath of God by becoming an atoning sacrifice for them in their place. He had come to make unrighteous people righteous in God's eyes. Most of the Jews of his day didn't understand the message of the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer and die for the people of God. Right? It's almost as if they were blind to it because they didn't, or rather because they wanted the earthly benefits of the kingdom of God immediately. So Jesus doesn't want his identity spread because people would misunderstand what it means that he is the Christ. People would misunderstand what it means that he's the Son of God. He knows that their understanding of Messiah and what that means is going to be incomplete until after his death and resurrection. Which tells us something important, that we can't really understand Jesus apart from the cross. 
we really can't understand why Christ came apart from the cross. But we'll see after his death and resurrection, it's going to be time to publicly declare who he is because then his people will understand and be able to declare rightly that he is the Messiah. But not only that, but I found this interesting. I think Jesus didn't want his identity as Messiah to spread because he knows it's going to bring him wild popularity. This seems maybe a little bit strange, but hear me out. Jesus knows that with the Jewish misunderstanding of who the Messiah is, that people will flock to him with zeal because they think he's going to run out the Roman Empire and destroy the enemies of the nation of Israel. And if that kind of popularity were to come, if people were to flock to him for that reason, Jesus knows that he would never be able to go to the cross if he were to permit that to happen. Because the people would have never allowed him to be crucified. The crowds would have never turned on him. He would have never been betrayed into the hands of the Pharisees. The people would have guarded him like a political leader with their misunderstanding of Messiah. If that kind of popularity were to come, Jesus knows that his message of repentance and faith in himself and belief in the coming kingdom of God would fall on deaf ears or be drowned out by the shouts of the crowd who wanted him to establish a nation right then. And Christ is not going to let that happen. He's not going to let that happen. Jesus is absolutely resolved to fulfill the work that his father sent him to do. You could think about it this way. Every time that Jesus tells someone to be silent and not tell anyone that he is the Christ what he's saying is I must go to the cross I must go to the cross every time that he commanded people to keep his identity quiet he was digging in his heels and setting his face like a flint on the cross he refused to have any kind of public misunderstanding or political movement centered around him keep him from dying on the cross and making atonement for sinners in order to save them He refused to be kept from his work of dying for us. Right, so we've talked about the compassion of Christ. You want to see his compassion again? This is compassion. Right, this is the love of Christ. That he would do this for sinners. That he would, in essence, make his entire life a death march toward the cross in order to save sinners like us. That is the compassion of the Lord Jesus. He wouldn't let anything keep him from his mission. Can you see here again that Jesus is more concerned with doing spiritual good and saving sinners than he is with physical healing? I hope you can see that. Even though it would be available for him or possible for him to create a nation where he could end all poverty and all disease and all hunger and things like that, he refused to do so. And he refused to do it because he came to save sinners, he came to preach the gospel. That's the central purpose of his mission. So, again, you want to talk about the compassion of Christ. His healing miracles only scratch the surface. His great compassion is that he will not be kept from saving us and healing us of our sins by his blood. He's not going to be kept from doing eternal good for his people, which is much more important than our physical good. But now we come to the next day. I promise we'll be much shorter through these next five verses. So after a night of busy ministry and healing the sick and casting out demons, the Lord Jesus goes away to pray early the next morning. Verse 35 tells us that he went out to a desolate place. 
in a nutshell, he went, out, he went out to be alone with his father, which should tell us something about prayer. If you're not doing it and the sinless son of God did, you need to make time to pray. But that's another sermon for another time. But why would Jesus go away and pray? It's meant to show us the devotion, again, that Christ had to his mission as the Messiah. He's come to do the will of his father, so he goes and communes with his father. And in his humanity, and his human nature, he asks for wisdom and strength to carry out the will of his father. He'd come to preach the good news. He'd come to save sinners by his cross. And he asks his father to help him. So when Jesus goes away to pray, what he's doing, and we'll see it two other times in the Gospel of Mark, is he's reaffirming his mission. It's meant to show us that Jesus is committed to the work that his Father's given to him. Like He has laser-like focus on why he's here, and he won't be kept from it. He won't be kept from doing spiritual good for his people. He will not lose focus. But verses 36 through 39, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So again, as, as Jesus is praying, Peter and others are searching for him. Jesus left the house uh, early in the morning while it was still dark. Everyone else was probably still asleep. But when they find Jesus, they give him almost a gentle rebuke. Right? Everyone is looking for you. Right? Again, it's a very mild rebuke, but it nevertheless is a rebuke. And this means something like, where have you been? Right? Where have you been, Jesus? What are you doing out here? More people are showing up for healing. Everyone's looking for you. You don't have time to be out here. People are looking for you. Come on, let's go back to the town. You have more work to do. There are people that you need to heal. But Jesus does something that doesn't seem very Jesus-y according to modern ears. He says, nope. <laughs> I'm, I'm done with this town. Let's go on to the next town so that I can preach there also because that's why I'm here. Why would Jesus do this? Right? Why would he refuse to go back to Capernaum right now and heal more people while more people are looking for him, asking for healing? I, I think it's because Jesus knew the hearts of the people of Capernaum. Jesus says later in his ministry, if you want to write this down, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, if the works that were done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented and they wouldn't have been destroyed. Jesus knows the hearts of the people in Capernaum. He knows they're only coming around for physical healing, that they're not interested in his message. They're not interested in the forgiveness of sins. They're not interested in the spiritual healing that he gives to those who come to him by faith. They were saying in their hearts, what can Jesus do for me right now in this temporary life? What kind of earthly benefit can I gain from Jesus right now? But they weren't coming to Jesus in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. They weren't coming to submit to him as Lord. They were coming with a what can he do for me right now kind of attitude. Just a quick note, if you come to Jesus for something that he can do for you right now that isn't your forgiveness and reconciliation with God, then you're an idolater and you've not come to Christ rightly. If you come to Christ because maybe he can make me feel better or maybe he can fix my marriage or maybe he can 
help me with my finances, but you don't come to Christ, that you might know Christ and be reconciled to God, you're an idolater. And I'm not saying that Christ can't give you joy, and I'm not saying that Christ doesn't give us principles in his teachings that will indeed heal marriages and do things like that. I'm, I'm not denying that, but I'm saying primarily, why do you come to Christ? Come to him that we might know God through him. And Jesus knows that that's not why the people of Capernaum were coming. And his response reminds us of that. Reminds us that he didn't come just to do good for them right then in the moment. Again, he didn't just come to heal the sick and make everyone's earthly lives better. He didn't, came to, he didn't come to gain popularity by miracles. So he says, let's go. i got to preach in other places. Let's go. And that's why he began his public ministry. So he could preach the gospel of God so that they could be saved. So that he could go to the cross and pay for the sins of those who would believe in him. He came into the world to save sinners, not to give people their best life now. He's much more concerned about saving your soul than he is your body. So he leaves Capernaum. Forsaking all the popularity that he had gained and setting his sights on the priority of preaching the gospel of God and marching every day toward the cross where he would accomplish that gospel and save his people. So now as we enter into the home stretch of this sermon, we have a snapshot of the ministry of Jesus. And in it, we see what he did and why he did it and what his primary focus was on. First, we see what he did. He helped people by healing them. He did miracles, and he preached. Why? Well, he did miracles because he had compassion and in order to back up his message. And he preached his message so sinners could be saved and enter into his kingdom. But for all the good that he did in his healing, his focus was on his message and his work, his salvific work. That said, Jesus' ministry was one of both word and deed. That's what we see here, word and deed. His deeds validated and backed up his word. They showed his compassion and his authority to teach, but his focus was on preaching the gospel and saving sinners. This tells us that this has to be our focus as his people. This has to be our focus. Think about it this way. I had a brother... Uh, Help me on this. We, the church, are the body of Christ. We are the visible representation of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. And we can't perform miracles, right? Let's go ahead and just write that down. You can't do miracles, all right? Though we cannot perform miracles, our words and our deeds show the reality of Christ and his gospel in the world. Right? Just like Jesus' miracles did for his original audience. What we do, the compassion that we show, the works that we do, and the message we proclaim are our way of showing the world that Christ indeed spoke the truth because look at how he has transformed us. Look at the message that we preach. Our ministry, whether it be as a church or as individuals, must be full of both good works and the truth of the gospel declared to sinners if we are really to be the body of Christ. Our ministry should not look radically different from his except the miraculous. And to be honest, if I'm going to keep it real, right, every sermon should be written not for anyone down the road but for the church that you're preaching it in. 
To be honest, I, I, I think that we've fallen away some as a church that has deeds to back up what it is that we preach. Right? I'm not finger pointing, I'm pointing it back at me too. We are strong on the word, are we not? We love sound doctrine. We preach a big God. We preach the purity of a gospel of sovereign grace. But we can do much better as a whole for showing people around us the compassion of Christ. We can do better at backing up our message with our deeds. So I think one thing that we can apply here both individually, if it applies to you as an individual, but certainly as a congregation, is seeing the necessity of both word and deed in our ministry. Right, so a question to you as a church, this is something I've, I've asked before, but I'll, I'll ask it again. And I pray that you would sincerely think this through with the rest of us. What can we be doing in our area where God has placed us? Because again, he's sovereign. He wants Revolution Church here in the East End. What can we be doing in our area to show people that we mean what we preach? What can we do that we actually care about them? That we're actually compassionate like our Lord because we're being conformed daily into the image of the Son of God. Give thought to that, church. Please. Please. Sin sincerely, like Stephen and I as your elders are begging you. Because we're not geniuses. We're not the smartest men in the world. We can't come up with every idea by ourselves. And I'm not saying that to chastise you. I'm saying this is a church and we have meaningful membership here and we want to know what you think. We need your help. God gives all of us a measure of wisdom that we might work together as his body, arms and legs and eyes and all this coming together to do work together. But I want us to see that the ministry of the church ought to mimic the ministry of the head of the church, the Lord Jesus. Word and deed, but with a special focus, and I don't worry about this with us, praise God, that we would never, ever neglect the gospel and that we would always be using our deeds as a way to lead us to declare the message of Christ and him crucified to sinners who are on their way to hell without him. So please pray about this. Write your ideas down. Contact us. Seek wisdom from God in this. But again, I want to apply this personally too. This is deeper than just us as a church body. Not all of the ministry of the church is the ministry of the church with the name on it. You're a member of the church. You're a Christian. This applies to you individually. As Christ's people, we must be people who are full of word and deed in our daily lives. So I must ask you, and I'll let God do the work on your heart, are you full of word and deed, or are you a lopsided Christian who only focuses on the word? You'll tell someone the gospel, but you won't help them. You'll tell someone the gospel, but you won't be patient with them. You won't be compassionate with them, but you know your doctrine. And I praise God that you know your doctrine. Are you lopsided, though, where you're a word-only Christian? Or are you the one who is only ever showing goodness and kindness to others in what you do? And when it comes time to declare the message of the gospel, which, by the way, Paul says, if they don't hear, they can't be saved. Read Romans 10. But you, you only focus on doing good because, if we're going to be honest, at heart, you're, you're a coward. Because you don't want to tell because you're afraid to offend are you a lopsided Christian or 
Are you an apathetic Christian? And you do neither. Perish the thought of that. Let the ministry of Christ show you how you ought to minister in your everyday life. It ought to be balanced, both word and deed. Well, to close, our Lord Jesus served people in his ministry, but his focus was always on their spiritual good. He never let anything keep him from preaching, and he never let anything keep him from the cross. And that's our great hope. Christ went to the cross for us. That's how we're reconciled to God. We trust in him. We trust in his cross for the forgiveness of sins. Even now, if you're convicted for your sins of being a lopsided Christian, we repent and we trust in the cross of Christ. We trust in Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf to make us right with God and not our own works. But nevertheless, we strive to imitate him in his ministry. So may God help us to reflect this same kind of model to serve others as we've been served, but to never neglect the word, the message that Christ came to preach. May God put his blessing on our hands and our mouths as we set ourselves to work for his kingdom. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth that your word confronts us, that even just an example of the ministry of your son can show us where we might be erring. God, I pray that those of us who have become lopsided one way or the other, Lord, that you'd grant us repentance and you'd help us to imitate your son. And God, for us as a church, Lord, please give us collective wisdom on what we ought to do as your people here in the East End, here in Portsmouth, here in Scioto County, what it is that you want us to do with the resources that we have, with the talents that you've given to us, with the, with the time that we have. God, help us to not be a, a church that's always uh, business as usual, but a church who's always saying, how might we reach those who do not know the Lord? God, put a burning in our hearts that we would preach the gospel and back it up with good deeds. God, above all these things, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who was the perfect minister, who is the perfect servant, and by him we've been made righteous and granted his righteousness. Our only hope is in him, and we trust him. We thank you for him. We praise you forever. Amen.